This morning I want to talk to you about what God's plan is. So the title of our message, this three-part series, is Evangelism, God's Purpose and Plan. When you know His purpose and plan for evangelism, you will have the discernment and the confidence in that purpose and in that plan to know what to do to be part of it and what not to do. That's our desire, to cultivate discernment through the faithful teaching of the Scripture. If there is anything in the Scripture that those in Christendom have deliberately and in some cases collectively chosen to express hatred for, it is God's purpose in evangelism. That God would have somehow sovereignly decreed as if He has any right to do that is most disdained even by those in many cases whom He has decreed to save. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to exhibit that arrogance and that really light-hearted perspective on the basis of all that God has done. A willingness to belittle or even not take the time necessary to understand it to the degree that we can and say, oh, it's just a mystery, I don't get it, is not faithfulness. Friends, the doctrine of election is the basis, it's the foundation upon which you love Jesus Christ if you do. You couldn't have and you wouldn't have if God had not sovereignly decreed for you to do so. And if you have even a shadow of thought of anything else being the reason for which you love Jesus Christ, it's pride. It's pride. The doctrine of election destroys your high view of you. And it exalts God, resulting in a high view of Him. You say, why do we put so much emphasis on the doctrine of election? Because when you get this right, everything else falls together. Everything else falls together. But as long as we battle against this, and we pit the Bible against the Bible, and we find other verses that teach something completely different, which they don't, by the way, then we'll be frustrated. And in your evangelism, if your motive for, if the basis for, if the foundation for your evangelism is rooted in anything other than God's sovereign grace, you will be very frustrated and you will be tempted to manipulate others with your own persuasive ability. On the other hand, if you rest in His sovereign decree and you're devoted to the truth of the gospel, the Spirit of God will use you exactly as He has determined to use you. Be faithful to what the Scripture teaches. Don't take on any more responsibility than what the Lord has given you. Don't believe that you somehow bear the responsibility of anyone's salvation. Believe that God has determined whom He will save. Be faithful to the commands that He has given to you and sleep well. That's who you want to be. You want to be the person who rests in His Word. But in many, many cases, 
There are those who take a human perspective on the character of God and somehow believe that it makes sense to superimpose their own understanding of themselves upon their understanding of God rather than devoting themselves to a biblical theology proper, a biblical understanding of the character of God and then a biblical understanding of themselves, a biblical anthropology. What does the Bible say about man? What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about the Bible? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about the church? You heard a great explanation this morning from Mark on what the Bible says about the church. So this is what we're devoted to. and So I make no apology about this at all. We're never going to change on this. We're never going to somehow slip into a little more of a man-centered perspective on evangelism. Should we be man-focused in our evangelism? Well, yeah, <laughs> because man is the focus of God's loving heart. It's ultimately God's glory. But God has determined in His love to focus upon man, so we too must be willing to focus upon man. The way Jesus has said that to us is that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so really what this comes down to is loving God and loving people. But in the proper order and in the proper mindset. Rather than thinking that we somehow in our love for people can persuade them to do something that they can't do. If we love God rightly, we will be faithful to what he has said about himself, what he has said about mankind, what he has said about how they will be saved, and what he has said about how we are to be involved in that. Simple enough? So let's look at this together. I want to review quickly from last week. Number one, this was point number one, just two points in this three-message series. Point number one, God's purpose in evangelism. We said that it's his glory, ultimately. We showed that God's purpose in evangelism is to display his glory by electing the bride of Christ in eternity past, drawing the elect unto his son inside time and history, and presenting the elect to Christ as his spotless bride. So really these two realities, that God has determined whom he would save, and he has determined that he would present them to his son as a spotless gift. That's the purpose. That's what it comes down to. You say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, that's not God's fault. And so your role and my role is to simply humbly and gratefully subject ourselves to the truth of Scripture rather than trying to twist it and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. This doesn't make sense to me, therefore I'm going to take my philosophical ability and work it and massage it into something that makes sense to me because this just doesn't make sense to me. Well, you're the problem, just like I'm the problem. When we read the scripture, when we hear solid Bible teaching, and we say, I just don't get it. You got to persevere. You got to sit under the right teaching. You got to surround yourself with the right people. You got to be willing to separate yourself from the wrong people. From Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. A uh, little parenthesis here, that was before you were born. Okay? Before the foundation of the world. Before you had the ability to choose Christ, which by the way, you have never had the ability to choose Christ. 
even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, you can, you can put in the word why there, why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. You want to know whether or not you're of the elect? Do you desire holiness? Do you desire to be blameless based upon the blood of Jesus Christ? In love, God's love is the vehicle. In love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What's this about? It's about His glory. It's not about you or me establishing some scholarly ability or achievement to be able to communicate this in a way to others that makes sense to them and is palatable to them. If you're in Christ, if the Spirit of God indwells you, you have the ability to comprehend the Word of God, but it still requires diligence and it still requires thankfulness and it still requires humility. And so if we will faithfully together focus upon these truths, then as time progresses, and you've seen this, and I've seen this, we've seen this together, the Lord is softening us to this truth. As I look around at some of you, I can remember times where we've had personal, private discussions about the doctrine of election, and you were getting a little bit tense. And I would include myself in that. I don't look at the doctrine of election and say, I totally get it. I get what I think the Lord has enabled me to get at this point. It's there. We must be thankful for it. We can enjoy it. We must rest in it. We must realize the reality that if this is what God has said, it's right and it's good and it's true and we must not disdain it. That would not be good. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Why do you ever receive an inheritance? Why does anybody ever receive an inheritance? Because someone else in your bloodline decided to be benevolent. Not because you earned it. You receive a wad of money because Uncle Larry in Alabama got hit by a truck. Right? You didn't earn that. You didn't, you didn't deserve that. Uncle Larry decided to be kind to you. I didn't even know Larry, Uncle Larry even liked me, you know. Here I get this big old bank account. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Having been predestined. This is God's design. That's why God determined it, not just before you were born, but before He created the earth. Before the foundation of the world. And then this according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is His counsel. This is His precepts. This is His speaking. This is what He believes to be right, and therefore He declares it. It's according to the counsel, not counsel as in a team of folks, but the counsel, the speaking forth of what He believes to be right. It's rooted in his character. He can't go wrong. He can't do that which is unjust. He can only do that which is right. And so it's according to what he has counseled within his own heart to be true and right and correct. 
verse 12 of Ephesians 1, so that we, here's the so that, you love these so that's in the Bible, I didn't make that up, you know that, right? There's so that's all over the Bible. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, that we might be, that we might exist, that we might live to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? It means that we're involved now. It means that we are involved in praise that results in his glory. That's why we sing to him. But that's not all we do for that purpose. We live for him. We exalt him in the depths of our hearts in the worst of moments, in the most frustrating of events, in the most heart-shattering of realities. We trust him. That is to be to the praise of his glory. Why? Because you look back at the doctrine of election, you go, oh yeah, that's right, he's sovereign. He determined this. I didn't wiggle my way in. I didn't pay the club dues. I didn't develop a reputation that called the rest of the club to say, oh yeah, he, he fits. God decreed it. And so no matter what the circumstances, I can say I rest in that. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, that's your role, right? And believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so between now and then, we do what we do to the praise of his glory. It's all about his greatness being displayed. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. And we said this, that in his glory, he predetermined that what would most glorify him is that having predestined the elect unto salvation, that they would redeemed ultimately to be a bride presented to Christ. And so we, we know that from Ephesians chapter 5, which speaks of Christ and his bride, the church, how Christ loves the church is the example for all men and how they are to love their wives with a sacrificial love, a willingness to die for them. Revelation 19 tells us in verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. You see, this is about his glory. He is glorified in this presentation of the bride of Christ to his son Christ. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You see that? His bride has made herself ready. You say, well, I thought he was sovereign. I'm not involved. I never said that. You are involved. Now that God has awakened you, he has given you new life. He has regenerated your heart. Now what do you do? You're involved in your sanctification. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 12, Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to work and to will for His good pleasure, that He would be pleased, that you are becoming less like self and more like Christ, that you are decreasing and He is increasing. So the presentation of your life, the devotion of your life, the details of your life, the walk of your life is increasingly less like you 
to the degree that people would say, that person is changing. I've seen him sin, I've seen him fail, but I've seen him repent of those sins and those failures, and I'm seeing him less and less willing to fail in those areas. Because he loves Jesus Christ. It's not about you somehow flipping a switch and becoming a sinless individual devoted to sainthood, devoted to perfect behavior, but that Christ is working this out in you and you are responding by working it out in you. Tim and you, working together for your sanctification. That he would be glorified. Why? Because ultimately... God will present you as part of the bride of Christ to Christ if that is in fact being worked out in you. Verse 8 in Revelation 19 says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see that works are important. We don't believe in works salvation, but we do believe in salvation works. We do believe that faith without works is dead. And so a faith without works is not salvific faith. The person who has faith in Christ has deeds that result in the sanctification of his own life and the equipping of the lives of others to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. So this is what the church is to be doing in the meantime. Engaged in works. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down, this is John the Apostle, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Glorify God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. We spent all our time last week dealing with this foundational doctrine, the reality that God is sovereign in all things, but in particular sovereign in having determined whom he would save. And some would say, why would you emphasize that? That's only going to turn people away. I don't have the ability to turn the non-elect away. I don't have the ability to grab the elect. The only ability I have is to be faithful by trusting the Spirit of God to do a work in me that is the same work that He would do in you that He will use to draw the elect unto His Son. We didn't even get to what I believe to be the most comprehensive treatise in all the Bible on the doctrine of election, and of course that's Romans 9. In verse 13, Paul says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is twins before they were born. What is God's hatred? I mean, when you think of hatred, you think of your kind of hatred. You think of that hatred that you experienced in the seventh grade or the third grade on the playground when somebody took whatever you were playing with and you wanted it back. This is not God's hatred. God's hatred is simply a matter of God distancing himself from that which is unrighteous. God opposing that which is unrighteous. You say, well, how in the world could Esau have caused himself to be unrighteous in the womb? That's not the issue. The issue is that God has not set his special love upon Esau. He set it upon Jacob. And you say, how could he do that? Because he's sovereign. Because he's sovereign. I don't take some kind of special joy 
in the reality that God has not set his special love upon some. But I take great joy in the fact that he has set his special love upon some. And that's what we focus on. Then you ask this deductive question. And before I give you the question, I'll give you the answer. The answer is no to the question, did God decree that some would not be saved? And the answer is no. And you say, how can you say that? Because the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible does not teach that God has sovereignly decreed that some would not be saved. You say, but deductively, right, stop your deduction at the point where the Bible stops its deduction. Stop where the scripture stops. You say, I don't understand that. And I say, good, I don't either. We're in the same group. If you want to look at that and say, I don't understand that, that's okay because the Bible doesn't explain that to us. We do know that man in his rejection of Christ is ultimately responsible. This is the reality that you must rest in in that regard. No one goes to hell undeservingly. No one. The wages of sin is death. And it is the sinful condition of man that leads to God's wrath upon his life. You say, I don't understand how that works together. And I've already told you, neither do I. And you don't need to, and I don't need to. Let's continue reading in Romans 9, and you'll see why. What shall we say then? Right? Now take heart. Paul's with you. Paul's with you. In fact, go, go with me back to Romans 9, verse 1. Paul doesn't have a very evangelistic heart. Wow, look at this. Romans 9 verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He emphasizes what he's about to say by prefacing it with this. I'm telling the truth, and I'm telling the truth in my Savior's name. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. See, that's an expression of an emotional disposition. He has great sorrow, great anguish. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Friends, that is the evangelistic heart that the one who trusts in the sovereign decree of God has. Take pattern from Paul. Learn from Paul who had an extensively unbridled, unlimited heart of devotion and compassion for the lost. And yet he believed in the doctrine of election because it is true. Verse 14, what shall we say then? That's what you're saying, that's what I'm saying. Is there injustice on God's part? See, you thought you came up with that question. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, God can do this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, that's what you want. You don't want this to depend on human will. You don't want that. Because you know the spiritual condition into which you were born. So you don't want this to be dependent upon mankind, but in the moment that you get into that mindset, you start manipulating people. 
You start doing whatever you can do to persuade them to love Jesus. If you rest in his sovereign decree, if you rest in the reality that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, then you trust him and you are faithful to what he has called you to do. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? See, here's the question you need to embrace, and me too. Who are you, O man? This is to you, this is to me. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God has said what he has said, and it's true. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Say, wait a minute, prepared for destruction? Who prepared them for destruction? Not God. The text doesn't say that. It's no mistake that the text does say that those prepared for glory are prepared by God for glory. The text does not say that God prepared anyone for destruction. They prepared themselves for destruction. They brought destruction upon themselves. If you read this, and you embrace this, and you hear this for what it is, you really believe it. It's humbling. And it steals your pride. It strips you of any ability to take any shadow of credit for being a Christian. It also strips you of any shadow of ability to persuade someone else to become a Christian. And it leaves it in God's hands, but it calls you to responsibility. It calls you to be faithful. And it's not unusual that churches will abdicate to an Arminian or a man-centered theology that somehow puts the responsibility back in man's hands. And then what does that result in? It results in manipulative efforts to persuade man to do something he can't do. On the other hand, if we're devoted to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we will be faithful to the commands of the scripture to evangelize the lost with a faithful life. So, point number two. What is God's plan for evangelism? What is God's plan for evangelism? Yeah, I think you get the purpose now. We've been over it enough. The purpose is God's glory. And at this point, many people will still resistantly and pridefully attempt to pit the Scripture against the Scripture. Well, that can't be true because of what this says over here. Reject that tendency. I would say it the way Paul says it. Grow up into your salvation. Grow up into the reality 
This is what big boys and girls think and believe. And if we rest in this, we will then be motivated to engage God's plan. If we rest in something else, we will engage a different plan. Rest in God's sovereignty, be faithful to his plan. Here we go. Paul, at the end of life, writes 2 Timothy to Timothy. He writes it from a cold jail cell where he very likely is being starved. He's not, he doesn't have enough clothes to stay warm. He asks for his coat at the end of that. He doesn't have the books that he desires to have. He asks him to bring his books. He's in a, a painful circumstance and he's being punished for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He knows he's at the end of his life. He tells him he's being poured out as a drink offering. And as he writes this letter, you can imagine he is well aware of the fact that this is his last, very likely, ability to communicate with Timothy. And so he's thinking that as he writes. And so he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Don't let the culture, and certainly don't let the watered-down church dictate your theology. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. That means to uncover falsehood. Uncover bad teaching. Our culture's made that easy for me. Reprove. Rebuke. Say it strongly when necessary. And exhort, encourage, with complete patience and teaching. Be patient with people, but teach them. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. See, this is why the doctrine of election is so hated in our culture, because so many people in churches, forget the culture, so many people in churches hate the truth. They don't like it. It doesn't fit their own personal theology. Well, my God would never do that. Well, your God's not the God of the Bible, if that's the case, because this is what the Scripture teaches. And so Paul is very clear. Be patient with people and teach them. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so we have Joyce Meyer. And so we have Joel Osteen. And so we have Rick Warren. We have people that teach a false gospel that sounds very much like a true gospel. And the best counterfeit is that which looks most like the real thing. And they're crafty. And they do a tremendous job of couching it in such a way that it's packed with Bible verses. So people listen to it and they think it must be true. So this requires discernment. So Paul says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. And then this, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All those who await Jesus Christ with a longing heart, 
All those who desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, to worship him in perfection and in faithfulness and in humility. Paul's at the end of his life. And he's not abandoning the teaching of God's sovereignty. He's still teaching it. Back in Ephesians 4, you remember we spent several weeks ago some time in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And in that passage, we saw that the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist is called to equip the saints for ministry. The guy who calls himself an evangelist, and he's out there running around, just going from place to place, kind of throwing out Bible verses and beating people over the head with it. You know, repent, you're going to go to hell, you're going to die, you're miserable, you're worthless, what's wrong with you? The guy who does that, but has no attachment to a church for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of ministry is not doing evangelism. Call it what you want, but please don't call it evangelism. It's not what it is. So letter A. I'm going to give you a few letters here under this point of God's plan for evangelism. Letter A. Rest in God's sovereign grace. Rest in God's sovereign grace. We're going to go through a lot of scripture here. and We're not going to break it down as detailed as we usually do. But you'll see these realities in these passages. Go with me back to chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. And my hope is that you and I will see that the faithful evangelist rests in God's sovereign grace. It's the most comforting, soothing of all the doctrines. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's the doctrine of election. For his own purpose and grace, he called us, not because of our works, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. Before there was any such thing as time. God gave this reality to us. See, this is to rest in his purpose. As Paul begins this final letter of his life, at least as far as we know. It's the final Pauline epistle. It's certainly the last letter in the scripture written to young Timothy, Pastor Timothy. And so what does he tell him to do? He tells him to preach the word. And here he's calling him back to the reality that Jesus Christ granted this to us before time. Let that be the certain reality. Why would you guess that God would do this before time? Because that's when no one existed who might have been able to take credit for it. So if God decreed it in eternity past, before the creation of mankind, mankind could not possibly bear the responsibility of the salvation of himself or anyone. But on the other hand, he's called to rest in God's sovereign grace. Letter B, know and depend upon the gospel. Know and depend upon the gospel. The gospel is your marching orders. The gospel is your hope. The gospel is the vehicle, the only vehicle, the exclusive vehicle by which man is saved by God. Paul says in Romans 1, 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who does enough works. No, to everyone who believes. And by the way, Philippians 1 verse 29 tells us that God grants that belief. So even God does what your role is. He grants you belief. He causes you to be born again, 1 Peter 1 says. So no one depend upon the gospel. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So you have the sovereign decree in eternity past, but you have the manifestation of it when? Inside time, space, and history. The gospel is displayed in a manner that you and I can look back historically and see that it took place and it is yet the firm and foundational reality of salvation and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He appeared and he abolished death. It says, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, so when I'm engaged in evangelism, what is the plan? Well, let me tell you what the plan isn't. Oh, hello, friend. Um, I'd like you to know Jesus Christ. Let me, let me show you about the doctrine of election. You ready? <laughs> You're hardly ready for that. I'm hardly ready for that. The unbeliever is not ready for that. If they ask questions, tell them the truth. Tell them what the Bible teaches. But I don't think your evangelistic plan should start with an explanation of election. It should start with resting in election. You say, well, why wouldn't you tell an unbeliever what election is? I didn't say that I wouldn't. In fact, I would if they asked. You must. You must be faithful to what the Scripture teaches. But the call to evangelism is not a call to explain the doctrine of election. It is a call to rest in the doctrine of election. Paul says in verse 11, for which, the gospel is the antecedent of that which, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He guards it. He keeps it. This is why when someone says, well, you, you can be saved, but you can lose your salvation, we say, no, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that God keeps us. We keep Him because He keeps us. What are we resting in? Our works? Our feelings? Our emotions? Even our faithfulness? No, we don't rest in our faithfulness. We rest in His sovereign decree. He has decreed to keep us, and He does keep us. And Paul says, I know whom I've believed. I know what God says about what it is to believe in Him and what God says about Himself and His faithfulness. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit. You get the terminology. You know, you're the one entrusted with the bankroll from your company or wherever. And, you know, you've got that little bag with a zipper on it and the padlock on it. And you're still scared out of your mind as you're dropping that into the box, right? You're trusted with a great deposit. Well, the gospel is that great and eternal and invaluable deposit. There is no measuring the value of the gospel, and it's been entrusted to you. And some would say, when asked the question, what is the gospel? Oh, you know, I never thought about that. What is the gospel? Oh, the gospel, that's, um, that's the Bible. 
The Bible, it's the Word of God. I think it's not a bad starting place to say that the gospel is the good news because that's a true statement, but it's not enough and it's not helpful. It's not helpful in and of itself. Friends, you must know the gospel. And if you've been in our church for six months, ten months, twelve months, you've got no excuse. You must know the gospel and you must know it well and you must be ready to deliver it because if you don't deliver it you're going to abdicate that responsibility to someone else who's written some kind of program and you remember the five points of that little program and you're going to go to that well let me think um, F stands for what does F stand for um, right why not know the gospel and some would say well those, those acronyms those are to help you get to the gospel. That's not a bad goal. I got a crazy idea. How about we just get to the gospel? How about we just explain what the scripture teaches? I remember one night I was out with a group of folks who had been kind of manipulated just as I had been into going out and you know trying to convince people to join a Sunday school class. And somebody said to me, How come you don't share that outline that we're supposed to share when we go out? And I said, Well, what's the point of the outline? Well, so you can share the gospel. I said, Right, so I just share the gospel. How do you do that? I, I said, well, um, I'll show you. So we go to this gal's house, a couple of ladies, foreign exchange student, speaks very little English, mostly Japanese. And so I said to her as we began to get to know her, if I say a word that you don't understand, you stop me. Well, she stopped me on every two-syllable or larger word. And I took the time to explain the words that you and I would say, oh, those are easy words. But to a person who speaks Japanese and not much English, only got a little bit of English, took a little more effort. By the time we left, she understood the word propitiation. She said, why would you explain that word? Because it's in the Bible. And it's an important word. You and I must know the gospel. You must understand the terminology. You say, but God's sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has determined the means. And the means is you. Knowing and depending upon the gospel. If you were to have an opportunity today with someone who's lost a loved one, who's lost a job, who's desperate, your next door neighbor, who's discouraged, they seem to be able to look nowhere but up because they're so low, what would you tell them? What would you say to them if they said to you, why, why do you have hope? Can you give me an account, to use Peter's word in 1 Peter 3, can you give me an account for the hope that is in you? What is the defense? How can you defend your life? You have hope and great difficulty. You know, you don't have a lot of money. You, you, I've seen you when you've lost your job. I, I was there when your wife died. I, I, I was there when, your, when your, your kids were treated poorly at school and you... You haven't always responded perfectly, but you've always acknowledged that God is good and He's sovereign and all that. Why? What will you tell them? You need to know the gospel. You say, well, where am I going to learn that? Iron Man and wow. That's the focus. That's the focus. We want you to know the gospel so that your life will be used effectively. We teach the gospel here on Sunday mornings. You say, well, I, I, need a, I, I, need a, I need a congealed answer. 
I need to know the gospel better than I do. Will you help me? I've gotten behind. Send me an email, I'll help you. On the other hand, go to one of the many, many trained women and men in our church who know the gospel. There might be someone sitting next to you right now who knows the gospel and knows the hope of the gospel and the joy of the gospel and the power of the gospel to save the lost. It's the gospel that God uses in His sovereign decree to save the lost. You want to sit by and get to the end of your life and say, well, God sovereignly determined whom He would save and He saved them all and man, it was great to watch it. No. No, you want to stand before the Lord and bow before the Lord and lay your face flat before the Lord and be grateful that the Lord used you in a faithful devotion to the gospel. You don't want to say, man, I had a great golf game. I could really throw a bowling ball. I was quiet the teacher. You know, I, I, could, I, could, I could really help a business grow. That's not what you want. That's not what you want. You don't want to go into eternity with your works, with your achievements. You want to go into eternity believing that God taught you and blessed you and led you to a knowledge of and a dependence upon that by which He saves the lost. By the way, the gospel is not only that by which He saves the lost. The gospel is that by which He sanctifies the saved. Simplifies it, doesn't it? It's not like there's all this new criteria that you need to be sanctified and strengthened and matured. Know and depend upon the gospel. It is, the, it is that which he guards and that which has been entrusted to you. In verse 14 he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. You can't guard what you don't have. You can't protect what you don't know. You can't defend what you don't understand. You say, that sounds like a lot of work. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. There are men in our church who are here to help you. There are women in our church who are here to help you. There's no reason that three weeks from now, six weeks from now, two months from now, you shouldn't be able to say, man, I remember that sermon when Todd sounded a little frustrated. And I listened. And I obeyed the scripture. And I chose to know the gospel and it's changed my life and it's changed my ability to trust the Lord in my evangelism and my ability to communicate the truth by which he saves the lost. By the way, I'm not frustrated. But I will say this. Don't get left behind. And I'm not talking about Tim LaHaye kind of left behind. I'm talking about the kind of left behind that in our church, as our church continues to grow, and I'm not talking about numerically. I don't care about that. Couldn't care less about that. But as our church grows in depth, as the Lord produces in us a deep passion and a deep devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ so that our lives will matter eternally and our focus will be on God and the salvation of the elect, that you would be a part of that. That you would be not just a part of that, but you would be a necessary and important and dependable part of that. You say, man, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I see people racing by me, you know, doing this and all that. Start where you are. No one is expecting anything of you except faithfulness. No one's look. listen, no one's looking at you saying, when's that person going to get it in gear? No one's thinking that, no one's saying that. But if you yourself 
are experiencing some hint of conviction that you are not faithful to the gospel, you're not faithful to Christ, and you're not faithful to his church, then be encouraged that there are people who love you and are only as faithful as God has enabled them to be and long to assist you in that faithfulness. We have absolutely no legalistic expectations of anyone. My goal, my desire, my role is to teach and be faithful to minister to you, to equip you for ministry. And your goal, your role, your place is to be equipped for that ministry and to understand all the nuances of your life so that you're not feeling pressured to engage in a cookie-cutter mindset where your life has to look like everybody else's. See, that's as wrong as anything else. You do what you can do, and you be thrilled with that. And you don't let anything that anyone else says, whether it's me or whoever, cause you to feel guilty if, in fact, you're being faithful to that which the Lord has called you to. Know the gospel and depend on it. That's the starting place. The Lord will enable you in his due timing to do whatever else is necessary. Letter C. Demand faithful teaching. Demand faithful teaching. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what we do in Ironman. My role in Ironman is not to teach men to know a bunch of stuff. It is to train men to train men. And so that's what we're doing. We're seeing the Lord reproduce that. I by no means want to create a bunch of Todd followers. The people show up to hear me teach. The goal is to equip men and liberate them to teach others, to train them. And so Paul says, give that which is trustworthy to men who are trustworthy. And that's what our church is. Our church is not a church that has discipleship. Our church is a church that is discipleship. And so Different men are on different levels of that, and so we tried to accommodate personally here and there by creating new venues for that, even meeting one-on-one, because we believe that's the faithful thing to do. And in due time, as men are receiving that kind of ministry, then they too will desire to extend that kind of ministry, and we're seeing it. That's why Paul says here, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This process does not terminate with any man, but it is carried through every man. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, an athlete is not crowned. You remember here, who's he talking to? Senior pastor talking to junior pastor. Paul talking to Timothy. This is your role. This is what you are to do. And friends, you must demand this kind of faithfulness in the pulpit. You must demand this kind of faithfulness from your shepherd when you're in a family group. This is what every man who has responsibility for anybody else's life is called to do. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. See that? A faithful teacher endures what he endures for the sake of the elect. 
He knows that the elect will be saved. So whom does he serve? He serves those who will allow him to be faithful in service to them. He doesn't know who the elect are. Paul doesn't know who the elect are until they're saved. He's got no window into this more than you or I do. We don't know who the elect are until they come to Christ. Why? Why does he endure everything for the sake of the elect? That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them for, before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. When a man stands in the pulpit or in any venue and he deals with the word of God flippantly and he tries to be a comedian and he wants only to draw attention to himself, And his goals and his desires are clearly some sort of self-serving practice. This is not a man who is faithful to the scripture. He should be ashamed. Paul says, be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And much more often today than not, is the man who stands in the pulpit and pretends to faithfully divide the word of God and he only does that which is necessary to get more people in the door and to coddle them and to give them that which tickles their ears. If you haven't noticed, we're not here to tickle your ears. Letter D. Separate from the ungodly. Separate from the ungodly. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 2. But avoid irreverent babble. Godless chatter, one translation says. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. If the teacher of God's word is engaged in irreverent battle, he has set the bar low, and therefore the people who listen to his teaching will be inclined to speak in such a way that is poisonous, like gangrene. They will follow suit, and they'll take it further than he will. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You want to be an effective evangelist? You want to be engaged in God's plan for evangelism? Separate yourself from ungodly people and ungodly things. You cannot dabble in the world. You cannot be engaged in sexual fornication. You cannot be engaged in looking at things online that are ungodly. You cannot be engaged in relationships that do not glorify Jesus Christ and have any hope to share truth with someone in a way that's effective. They'll see right through it. Separate yourself from the ungodly. Letter E. Call upon the Lord. 
Call upon the Lord. Paul says in verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, do the things that people who call upon the Lord with a pure heart do. Devote yourself to separating yourself from youthful passions. You know, when a person gets to be 12, 13, 14, 15, youthful passions should be put away. There should be a practice in parenting that leads young people to be willing to subject themselves to godliness and separate themselves from ungodliness. A person who calls upon the Lord is a, a person who is willing to pursue righteousness and faith, love, peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. It is a pure heart that calls upon the Lord. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You know this. You, engage, you get engaged in some kind of secondary conversation about something that's really not fundamental and you start to battle a little bit with somebody and pretty soon you just got to win. It didn't really matter. Paul says next, uh, speaking about these ignorant controversies, that they breed quarrels. He then says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. He must not be looking for a quarrel, looking for an argument. The person who calls upon the Lord doesn't do that. He's not wanting to fight, looking for any opportunity. But he's kind. He's kind to everyone. He's able to teach. He patiently endures evil. He doesn't just patiently endure those who are annoying. He patiently endures the wicked, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there's correction involved, but it's done with gentleness. And then he says this, and this is the ultimate reality in evangelism. Listen to this. Listen closely. We're almost finished. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Hang in there. Listen. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is the condition of the unsaved. And you or I think that we've got some kind of persuasive ability to twist their thoughts into something that's going to honor the Lord, just get them to accept Jesus, just get them to ask him into his heart. All kinds of bizarre and unbiblical terminology that the Bible doesn't call us to. Yet the world has embraced, and Christendom has embraced. Why? Because it's easy. It's an oversimplification. It misses the point, but I can remember it. Oh, you need you, you got troubles? Just ask Jesus into your life. You got problems? Just You just need Jesus. Forgetting the reality that they're totally depraved. That they're, they're actually under the snare of the devil and captured by him to do his will. You know this. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. The person who's captured to do the will of Satan doesn't look like it. He looks like he's doing something good. It might even be that he pastors a church. He's doing something that has the appearance of godliness. But he's under the snare of of the devil. Why? Because, because his religious essence boils down to a moment in time when he chose Jesus. And he's not even a Christian. Paul says, be patient. Enduring evil. You want people to come to their senses. 
They don't have any sense. They're not looking at the scripture with regard to what it means to be a Christian. They're believing on or leaning on something that's unbiblical rather than thinking about resting in the doctrine of election and then knowing the gospel, living a sanctified life, devoted to personal purity, calling upon the Lord. You want them to come to their senses. You want them to be freed and liberated from Satan's domain. So, so what's, what's the problem? In other words, what's the problem with those who can't seem to get into this rhythm of resting in God's sovereignty and being faithful to the call upon our lives to deliver the message of the gospel? You see the, the doctrine of election everywhere in the scripture and you see man's responsibility as well. The problem is not that they are opposing doctrines the problem is that man attempts to equate them as if one is equal to the other. If God is sovereign, then that is the ultimate doctrine. The reality is that he is sovereign over all things. He has not only decreed the outcome, he has decreed the means. The doctrine of predestination means that the destiny is determined. But that doctrine of predestination is not that which allows us to eliminate our responsibility or forget our responsibility to share the gospel. God's purpose in evangelism is to glorify himself by loving and redeeming the elect to be presented to Christ as his spotless bride. God's plan in evangelism is for man to glorify God by loving him and loving others, serving them for his glory. God's purpose is to glorify himself in electing and redeeming some unto salvation. His plan is for man to glorify him in repentance and salvation and obedience to the gospel. His purpose is to glorify himself in a perfecting predestination. His plan is for man to glorify him in penitent proclamation. There is a call upon our lives to proclaim the gospel, resting in the reality that God will do what he is determined to do. And it is our great joy and privilege and blessing to honor him and obey him with that command. And my hope is that over the course of time, however many years the Lord gives us together, whether it be years or decades beyond, that we would be known by our faithfulness to evangelism. Don't forget the reality that we are called to baptize and disciple all the nations. And if we don't start here and now being engaged in faithful discipleship, we will never reach the uttermost part of the world. Father, thank you for your clear call upon our lives to rest in what you have determined sovereignly to be good and right according to the counsel of your will. We thank you for this rich truth. We pray that you would help us to be faithful And that you would use us. That we would, in fact, as you have predestined us for good works, love those good works. But that you have predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That we would love that conforming process. That we would recognize that this involves suffering. It involves tribulation. It involves difficulty. We will be persecuted. We will be hated. Jesus himself assured us that if man hates us, it's not because he hates us. It's because man hates him. So we cling closely to the person of Jesus Christ. In this moment, we call upon the Lord 
asking that the Lord God in heaven, who does what he pleases, would be pleased to use us to glorify him. Father, we thank you for this great and eternal privilege. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.